stay hungry, stay foolish. What does Bailey's, Kerrygold, Smirnoff Black, Ciroc Vodka, Singleton Whiskey, and Purdy's all have in common? Well, the answer is today's guest on the Innovation Show. Welcome, David Gluckman. Thank you very much. It's great to have you on the show. And I've just read That Shit Will Never Sell. We're going to talk about that today. It's the name of today's show. And David, it's a real, real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here. Before we even start about the Bailey story, it'd be great to start with you and how you got into this business. Well, I started, I left the university and started out in advertising. It was an idea suggested by my dad. He thought it might be an interesting career to go into. Unfortunately for me, when I started, my mentor decided that I should become an executive, a suit, as they call them. And um, I spent 10 years doing this um, very unhappily, I think because I was always wanted to get into some kind of creative function. I was interested in ideas, not in managing them. So advertising was the beginning. I managed after 10 years to persuade my boss in an ad agency to let me set up a product development department. I had no idea what I was going to do, but um, he very kindly um, agreed. And uh, the rest for me was history. You're South African, David, but you landed in London. How did that happen? We were encouraged. A lot of um, colonials, South Africans, New Zealanders, Australians, were encouraged by a company called the Overseas Visitors Club. And I remember travelling over on a on the Cape Town Castle. It cost me £39 for three weeks on board ship with three incredibly bad meals a day, a thousand ladies and... 500 guys. <laughs> no, I like your odds. <laughs> um, and I, I, I really wanted to see the world and get away from South Africa. As it turned out, I decided to stay away. Brilliant. Like, let's fast forward then to, you do a, such a great job of capturing the real essence of, for me, I felt a real creative buzz was happening in Soho at the time, 1973, London, Ronnie Scott's around the corner, your office on Greek Street, a real under underdeveloped kind of Soho vibe, but a, a buzz of creativity. Oh, it is a brilliant place to be. There was a marvellous pub called the French Pub, which was owned by a Frenchman. And you could go in there any day and see um, people that um, were in the public eye, people like Francis Bacon, um, the artist. Um, there, there was another pub called the Coach and Horses where all the people who started Private Eye used to drink. A very unprepossessing place with an extremely rude landlord, but um, you'd see them all there, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and um, all the Private Eye people. So it was a great place to be. And you were there for your own creativity as well because you, you kind of opened the scene with you and your partner at the time, Hugh, when you had the brief and you're like, what are we going to do about this Irish brief? And you'd been in the office since 8 a.m. waiting for Hugh. You strolled in, you know, casually, and this was irritating you at the time. It was. I was, I was absolutely incensed because we'd only been in business for about a month and we both had families to support. And it was quite scary, really. And Hugh would sort of walk in, stagger in, and then he would look at his, his mail and look at the paper and then fold his arms and say, what are we going to do today? And I said, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about this Irish brief? 
So he's had one Irish brief because he managed to switch off for the weekend. Uh, so I had to explain to him what, what it was all about. And at the time, the Irish government had given a tax holiday, a 10-year tax holiday to all exports. And the IDV's Irish company, IDV was the client, had said to somebody, who'd said to somebody else, who'd said to me, we need a new brand for export. It was back in, in the Stone Age, I suppose, in terms of briefs, because there were no limitations, no parameters, no constraints. They just wanted an Irish drink for export. So we got chatting, and I had remembered working on Kerrygold in the 60s with Tony O'Reilly. And I said to Hugh, is there anything in Kerrygold that you think might work for a drink? And he said, well, what happens if you, um, if you mix cream and Irish whiskey? So I thought, well, that's a good idea. So I dragged him by the ear down the stairs into Berwick Street, where there was a supermarket. We bought a quarter bottle of Irish whiskey and a tub of cream, went back to the office, mixed them, tasted disgusting. So we um, went back and looked around the supermarket, added some sugar, bought some Cadbury's drinking chocolate, mixed it all together, and it tasted terrific. So that was 45 minutes to the prototype. Uh, I then got on the telephone to the client. We used to keep our suits in the office. So I put on my suit and said, can I come around and show you something? Uh, went along to IDV, which was half an hour by cab, uh, showed this product, and um, much to my delight and surprise, Tom Jago, my client, said, I love it. Let's do it. Brilliant. Because, you know, what I really pulled out of that, there was no endless meetings, there was no pitch decks, there was no buy-in, you know, all this corporate buy-in, all these R&D labs where you have to get everybody on the same page and you have to try and get meetings where people who may not even be close to the essence of a brand, and you had these cons no constraints just to use your creativity. Well, that, uh, that was the prototype, which was about 45 minutes. And then a couple of days later, we took it up to the R&D lab. And they weren't too enchanted with the liquid, which had three days bottle age by then. And um, But they knew what we wanted to do. I remember saying to the R&D guy, um, what did you think of our prototype? And he said, I thought it was horrible. But I knew what you were trying to get at. So um, that made for a good brief. And David, you talked about the guys in the IDV office. You talked about the atmosphere they created. Because I thought this was a key point, that they created this atmosphere of safety. So you could come with ideas like that. They didn't make you feel like you'd failed. They encouraged you almost without even saying anything. And it'd be great to talk about that because you, 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 there's a killer line you use and it's that the real heroes of innovation are those who buy it. Absolutely. I mean, I think that you can have the best idea in the world and sometimes I thought I did. But if the person at the other end of the table who was after all putting their job up on the line and, and taking the real risk, if they, if, if, if they didn't buy the idea, then you had nothing. And I think the most important part of my relationship with clients over the years has been that we both knew what the answer was when we saw it. And I think that it was so much more important that the other person saw it, though. I think the buyer is really the hero. What are the ingredients? Because this is so important for 
so many people who listen to this show, people who are trying to sell ideas up the chain, CEOs who are trying to sell it to the mothership, whatever it may be, maybe R&D Labs trying to sell an idea into the corporate company. What are the key points to try and get across? Well, in my experience, going as high as possible was incredibly important. The higher up the chain the client was, the more likely things were to happen. Uh, If you get to middle management and lower management, they're more preoccupied or have been with the process of getting there, the kind of research reassurance you need. I can remember the CEO when uh, Bombay Sapphire left the building, which was when Diageo took over Seagram's. They had to get rid of Bombay Sapphire because they had too many gins. The CEO said, we want a gin to replace Bombay Sapphire. And we wanted quickly. And everything happened in three or four months because um, the CEO had said, and he wasn't interested in research reports or anything like that. He was interested in the idea and how soon we can get it to market. The brand was called Tanker A10. And it's another one of these many brands that you worked and you created. It'd be great, David, to pop back to the Bailey story because there's more stuff in there I thought that was key. You told, so the real heroes are the buyers. One of the brilliant things I thought you did was you created this bottle and you got a designer who you worked with for a very long period of time to create a bottle and you made it look real. You made it look like it was a product in the market and then you dropped it into a bar on the way home and you check in every day. Well, that's what we did. We did two lots of um, research. We did three focus groups, which were almost unheard of it back in that time, 1973. And we put two bottles fully dressed uh, with labels and embossing and everything into a bar. And every couple of days when I went over to the company to have a meeting, on my way home, I'd look in in the bar. And every time I looked, the bottles just sat there gathering dust. Uh, Nothing much happened. And then two days before we went to Dublin to present the idea, I went into the bar again and one of the bottles was missing. And I said, gosh, what happened? He said, two policemen came in last night and um, polished off a bottle. So um, we thought, game on, this is it. We've now got incontrovertible evidence that Bailey's was going to work. Because you'd had a couple of setbacks with their focus group. You talk about some of the people saying it it tastes like kaolin and morphine medicine, for example. Yes, and um, I think one guy, a couple of guys said it was a, a woman's drink. And of course... Everybody else, all the other men in the group, um, agreed. So it was an unqualified success in focus groups. But then thinking back um, years later, you think, well, what a disaster it would have been if three people from West London had uh, killed what was turned out to be a very successful idea. I think you have to take research um, fairly lightly. Yeah, and I love I love the story you tell about when you you had the report and you were on your way over to Ireland to present the idea, and you just looked at each other and you went, "We just hide this yourself and Tom Jago." Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, I picked up the report under Chiswick flyover from the researcher and looked at it on the plane and while we were waiting for the flight, and it it wasn't the disaster, but it wasn't um, an unqualified success either. So I said to Tom, look, let's suspend this for a while because it's only going to put people off. And we were, you know, in a very strange position. 
we were presenting a single idea to people I had never, ever met uh, with no plan B and no fallback. So we had to give it all the help it could get. Imagine how many ideas in the world have been killed because of market reports or research reports that were just wrong. And what I love what you did with the bottle in the bar, people have put modern language on this today, like MVPs, minimal viable products about get a product, get it out there, get people using it. And you did that. You created a bottle, you created the drink and you put it in the bar and it was nailed by two guys in an evening. And that gave you the confidence to go and do things. And it's the same lesson over and over again. And it's one of the, it's one of the key lessons I took out, out of that chapter. But um, you had a few more little twists and turns before you got it over the line, which was, you know, you talked about the sales director, for example, in Ireland, telling you that the product would not take off in Ireland. Well, that was totally weird because we'd had the presentation in the morning, which went incredibly successfully. And um, they said, well, you must join us for lunch. And then they kind of upgraded the wine they gave us at lunch as well. And they thought the idea was terrific and we were heartily relieved. Anyway, I went for a comfort break after halfway through the lunch and met the sales director who hadn't been in the meeting. So what he knew about the, uh, what we were presenting is beyond me, but he just said, um, that rubbish you were presenting, it's never going to sell, not in Ireland. It's always a good sign when uh, the wine gets upgraded, but uh, I think this is one of the key things you do, and, and also such a difficult thing for people who are idea makers like yourself, is to let go of the idea and let the ownership reside with the buyer. Well, I think you learn all these things as you go along. I mean, I was, I think I made a point in the book that at the launch party, uh, I was introduced to one or two people as someone who helped with the packaging. And um, my heckles rose of that. But then I thought, no, these people are now taking over the idea to become their idea and not mine. And that's the most important part of the process. Once people feel ownership, then an idea has a real chance of success. You had the reunion 10 years after after people said it wouldn't sell. You were told in America, which is which I love, which is the title of the book. It'd be great to tell our audience a little bit about that, David. I wasn't party to the occasion, but the CEO of um, IDV, uh, Sir Anthony Tennant, who's now sadly dead, took the idea to a guy called Abe Rosenberg, who was IDV's man in in the US and the man that built brands like Sambuca Romana and J&B, the biggest selling whiskey in the States in the 60s. And he showed him a bottle of Bailey's and he looked at it and he said, the labeling reminds me of Vietnam fatigues. And then he tasted it and he looked him squarely in the eye and said, that shit will never sell. It seemed like a great (laughs) title for a book. And um, in his defense, he did take on the brand and made it a very successful liqueur in the US market. So um, everybody won. And as you say in the book, that's some good shit if it sold so well. Years later, you're sitting there and I loved what you did with the report that you'd hid 10 years previously. Yeah, I just handed it to David Dan, the CEO, and said, this is what you might have had in 1973. He laughed. Brilliant. Yeah, because again, another lesson, really key lesson, and this is what I love what you do in the book, is that you pull out key lessons for everybody to take about innovation, marketing, idea selling, and it's told through this great story. Because another one there is 
don't let yourself be led by what other people say. You're going to meet problems the whole way along the line. Well, it's much easier for somebody to reject an idea than to adopt it. That's why I keep coming back to this, the buyer being the hero. Uh, these, yeah, these are rare people who can look at an idea when it's presented. And sometimes I've presented them off the back of an envelope and said, that's great, let's do it. Um, you know, sometimes we put ideas out with no research at all and they've been successful. So um, business schools should perhaps try and teach people to buy ideas. I think that's a very rare and valuable skill. And one of the things, David, I think is such a valuable thing that you talk about is is just doing things, like just getting done. If you look back over this, Hugh had the idea, he threw it to you, you go down to the shop, 45 minutes later, you're putting on your suit, you're on your way over to the client and you're just getting it done. You know, you're not, you're not overthinking it, you're going with your gut and you're just getting it done. I think, as I say, the higher up the organisation you go, the more likely you are to continue that process of just moving forward quickly with very limited um, fuss or mess. One of the questions, you know, people will have on their mind is, you know, what kind of fee did you get? Did you get a percentage? We got paid about £3,000 for Bailey's back in 1973, which which helped. Uh, and I kept the um, gig for 36 years. So I'm not complaining. So it kept the, the agency basically going for such a long time as you had a great client. Yeah, I did. I mean, and there were different people. It wasn't always the same. But yeah, I must have done a few things right. We might jump on to some of your other ideas. Some of the lessons behind them are fantastic. Mm -hmm. One of the the rooms, for example, which was Green Island Room. Well, um, we decided that the company decided very early on that they were going to produce a rum from Mauritius, which I'd never even heard of until I went there, which is quite an exciting place to be. And um, when you go to a place for the first time, you do a lot of reading and um, picked up a book by Mark Twain, which described the island in incredibly glowing terms, saying that um, Mauritius was made and then God fashioned heaven after the island because it was so beautiful. And uh, this was a very attractive thing. And I was always fascinated by things people put on labels. I spent a lot of time looking at them and there were things like a four-year-go on a whiskey and all. I was fascinated by the bat on the Bacardi bottle. Where did it come from? Turned out it was the Belfry in their... um, factory in Cuba. And those little details, I think, were always intriguing to me. I remember a brand we produced called Cool Swan. Instead of putting produce of Ireland, I put made only in Ireland because I felt this was taking a very trivial thing and making it work a little bit harder for the brand. Uh, The other thing we did with that one was um, instead of saying serve cold, I put the line uh, beautiful chilled just to give it a little bit more meaning, a little bit more competitiveness, I suppose. When you mention stuff like uh, Green Island Rum, the bottle looks fantastic. And you, you give these beautiful images in the book to remind us and to bring them to life. And another one you talked about was Stubbs White Rum, which was another one where you, you used the real estate you had available to you. Well, that idea, uh, one of the things I discovered about Bacardi, which was the kind of wholly competitive grail that preoccupied us in those days, how do you come up with a brand to compete with Bacardi? I did a lot of reading and um, looked through all the company's existing research on Bacardi to try and find out what made the brand tick in order to come up with a competitor. 
And one of the things we discovered, I think, was that Bacardi was a kind of universal spirit. It appealed equally to men and to women. And the thought that occurred was, if you're trying to compete with massive brands like Bacardi or Coke or Red Bull, try not to compete with all of that brand. Try and shave off a piece of it and compete with that. And one of the things we discovered is that Bacardi was universal. It appealed equally to men and to women. You always saw attractive couples under palm trees uh, drinking Bacardi. So the theory that I had was why not develop a white rum that appealed primarily to men? So how do you do that? Well, first of all, Bacardi was very sweet and mixed with Coke, which is a popular mixer. It was sweeter still. So we said, let's produce a drier white rum. So that was the first thing we did, lower the sweetness significantly. The next thing we did was said, well, if it's going to appeal to men, it ought to be stronger. And Bacardi at the time was 38%. So I said, well, let's produce a rum that's 43%. And then the next thing that we did was to look around at where Bacardi came from. And Bacardi was all about palm trees and tropical islands. And that more or less shut out all the palm tree laden tropical islands that there were, because if we produced a rum from um, another island, it would just be uh, me too to Bacardi. We were looking for a place that would, would appeal more to men. And I literally took an, an atlas and followed the tropics around until I ended up in Queensland in Australia. And this was the time that Crocodile Dundee was happening. And I thought, what a great idea. Let's produce an Australian white rum from Queensland. It would be drier in taste, higher in strength. Being Australian was very macho. We put made only in Australia because I discovered that Bacardi was made in a whole host of different locations. We were looking for little things to put on the pack to make it, to give it more character. And I came up with a line which we put on the cap, which was first for thirst. It was one of those really corny lines you might find in something in at the turn of the century, very old fashioned, but it looked authentic and it looked attractive. So that was how we put together a competitor Bacardi, which I was at the time extremely happy with. This was mid eighties. I love the process again, David, you know, you spell this out. It's just about getting stuff done and it's, you know, the diverse inputs that you used and, you know, Hugh as well, you read different things, you, you, you know, you didn't do what everybody else does. You, you weren't watching Coronation Street every evening. You know what I mean? You, you were going beyond, you were educating yourself, you were upskilling yourself, you were, your diverse inputs of information seem to be very, very important. I think they were. Just giving a brand character, I think that was very important. Um, not to, you, you can tell brands that have been invented. They just look like it. They're modern. They look like they've been put together uh, through a process of consumer research stages. You know, they wear their, um, their, their labors on their sleeves. I mean, you have to look everywhere for to, to put brands together, I think. You talked about the language you used as well. And when you're talking about Smirnoff Black, which I'd love if you told us about that, a word can change a brand. Absolutely. That was one of my favorite ideas ever, I think, because it was so difficult. One of the things we learned was that you could never refuse a brief. You could never say, 
I think this brief is rubbish and I'm not going to do it. You had to try and make the best of every brief you were given. And this brief was 1990. Smirnoff in the US was on its knees. It was a cut case supermarket um, brand, which was only slightly above um, own label. And the two senior competitors in the market at the time were Absolute from Sweden and Stolichnaya from Russia. And the head of Smirnoff came to us and said, I want to produce a super premium Smirnoff brand to go into the US market. And I thought, well, this is a little bit like taking Kentucky Fried Chicken and getting it to compete with uh, Le Manoir au Cat Saison, Michelin-starred Kentucky Fried Chicken. That was the problem. And um, I did what I always did, which was go back, look through the files, try and study the brand, study where it came from, and think around. And um, I found the answer to the brief in a very unusual place. Back in that time... Smirnoff Red uh, Label, which was the main brand, had the legend 1818-1818 embossed on the shoulder of the bottle. And I looked at that and um, I remembered something that I'd read somewhere before, a long time back, and that was vodka is made in a continuous still. And it, it was a relatively new process, which was developed by an Irishman called Aeneas Coffee in 1830. So if 1818 was the founding date for Smirnoff vodka, then it must have been made not in a continuous still, but a pot still. So I thought, that's very exciting. Pot stills are used for making cognac and whiskey primarily, and they represent an older, more meticulous kind of process. So I said, okay, I know what we're going to do. We're going to make pot still vodka. But then pot still is simply a process. If you say to people, this is a vodka made in a pot still, they're perfectly entitled to turn to you and say, so what? So it's a process. What's the benefit? How does it deliver a vodka that will um, improve consumers' experience? And I looked around at what's made in a pot still, and the magic word for for, um, products like whiskey and brandy and cognac was smooth, because people don't really like the taste of these liquids. So they're looking for smoothness. They're looking for easy drinking. So I thought, what would happen if you took the word smooth and applied it to vodka? And in those days, um, it was a new word for vodka. Vodka was always, it was sharp, it was strong, it was dry, it was clean, it was piercing. Smooth was a kind of rounded word that fitted brown spirits. So I took that word smooth and I went to New York and did a few focus groups. And I had a technical guy sitting in the back room uh, reformulating products. And I said, let's set ourselves a target. Let us give people two vodkas to taste blind, in other words, unidentified by brand. And let's create a product where they spontaneously say that our product tastes smoother than Absolute or Stolichnaya. And we did this. We got to a stage where eight out of 10 people said, I like this one rather than that one, because it was smoother. And that was the the word that we used to build the brand. And what was interesting was that despite Smirnoff's poor reputation at the time, users said, even when I told them this was a Smirnoff uh, new product, they said, we would definitely drink it in preference to Absolute. And I said, why? And they said, because it was smoother. And and that's a belief I have, that you can... 
you can actually create better, different, more competitive products in any category. And if you think of vodka, I mean, the definition is it has to be colorless, odorless, and tasteless. So smoothness introduced an element of texture, which had never been done before. There's a brilliant piece you do when you bring it to New York and you're doing your focus groups. You created a magazine article and it looked like a fait accompli. It looked like this was in the market. And I loved what this did because this created a kind of a, a bias in the minds of the focus group where they actually, I can see this, they're wearing a different lens when they're trying the product. And I thought that was a masterclass. Well, that's something I've always done. I think the, the idea is that you should present consumers with a fait accompli. Otherwise, product research becomes a kind of parlor game. People want to change the color of the package because they're there in a focus group and they're getting paid 50 bucks or whatever it is, and they feel obliged to change. I wasn't interested in consumers who were laymen, after all, changing things. I was only interested in whether they would buy it or whether they would not buy it. And so I always presented products as if they existed on the market and other people were actually buying them. Because that goes back to what you said earlier on about you are the expert. That's what you're being paid for. So you're not going to go with 10 choices or three choices. You're going to go with there's no plan B. Like you, you call a chapter in the book, Bailey's was it. There was no plan B. You're going to see this one through. I absolutely love that mindset. I think if you're in the business of creating ideas, and I've been doing it now for a long time, it is actually incredibly easy to come up with six answers to a question. It really is because you're not committing yourself. The real challenge is coming up with one that you genuinely believe in and that you can sell to a client. And I think that um, it's, it's easy. You give me any brief, any category you like, and I can give you six answers in, in, in a morning and they'd be plausible answers, but they wouldn't solve the problem. I don't believe in, in beauty contests where you give consumers six different answers and ask them to decide which one they like. And it's, it's a cliche, but consumers like what they know. They don't know what they like. And I think that's quite important. It was like the old Henry Ford quote, if I asked them what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Exactly. Yeah. But, he also, but he, also, he also said, you can have any, any color you like as long as it's black. Yeah. One of the, the brilliant lines you pull out of this, and I think this the lesson you really impart behind Smirnoff Black is, to find the product advantage and make it real. Absolutely. I, I don't like the number of adjectives that don't mean anything that you see around. A lot of people put handcrafted. Now, who believes that it's handcrafted? And the only implication of handcrafted is they don't sell very much because it doesn't go through a machine. Or batch distilled is another one people put. Uh, again, that means they don't sell very much. It's... Um, they make it in small batches. So what? I thought that was key because that reminded me of, you know, you see people's websites or you see even salespeople and they're talking about features rather than benefits. And you, you're this is where you're saying that the words you use have to absolutely be taught about. Yeah. You use the words to build a brand and to build a memory of the brand. It's very important. We might park the lessons from the book there because there's so many in the book and I don't want to overdo it here. I want to give little tasters for it because you talk about so many of the brands you work on, you know, some of the successes, some of the failures and why you talk about Guinness Light, for example, in there. Not going to go into those now, but it'd be great to talk about another article you wrote, which was 
on your own LinkedIn, which was marketing success requires an appetite for risk. Could we jump into that for a little while? Absolutely. You spell this out really nicely. You talk about a formula that will allow you to take risks without bankrupting the company because you see this all the time. Almost too many people are involved or just too many cooks in the, involved in the process, etc. It'd be great to talk about some of the lessons. For example, only allow people who really understand the business to have anything to do with new brand development. You get a situation where some high-paid consultant comes in and says to a company, why don't you have a look at fish-flavoured vodka? Now, I think that's a terrible idea, but um, people can sometimes humbly look at it and say, well, let the consumer decide whether it's a good idea or not. And um, I reject that. I think people who work in brand development should be senior, experienced people and not juniors, because the more junior you are, um, the less you're likely to take a risk or the less you have license to take a risk. So it should be done. All my successful work has been done with people high up in the company. Yeah, and and that ties nicely into the next one because you talk about, and and this makes so much sense to me, where you spend so much money on research that you hardly have any money left for the development part. Well, that's right, because what you're doing is you're testing lots of options. You're testing five different products. You're testing different pack designs, different brand names, different concepts. And I mean, I saw the Guinness Light uh, research, which they did, which showed that it was a surefire winner. And they probably spent a million pounds researching it. And it was a complete and utter disaster because they didn't use any common sense in evaluating it. Yeah. With Guinness Light, we may as well tell our audience a little bit about Guinness Light as well, because it's something a lot of people will find incredulous. After the success of Miller Light in the US, which was a huge success, Guinness took the idea on board and said, what we need to do is to produce a lighter stout designed to appeal to young emerging lager drinkers. So they produced what was much a very good product. It was, it, it was lighter. It was less dense than um, regular Guinness. And they, they tested it every which way. They tested it mainly amongst 80 to 24-year-old lager drinkers. And then they put it onto the market with a tremendous brouhaha. And uh, it was put in across Ireland. It was heavily advertised with Armstrong on the moon. Seemed a strange equation to put moon landing on the same level as watered-down Guinness. And it turned out to be a complete disaster because the one thing they didn't do was take into account the dynamic and the social dynamic of what went on in the pub. I remember one guy, we did some research in Galway, and he said he walked into a bar and the place was festooned with guinness light material. He ordered a pint. And as he put it to his lips, um, an older guy, a 40-year-old, standing behind him, tapped him on the shoulder and said, drinking ladies Guinness, are we? And of course, they didn't understand that. People in the pubs killed the brand. I remember somebody saying with great delight, um, the ad said, they said it couldn't be done. And they were right, it couldn't. And there was some delight in seeing Guinness um, humble, humbled in Ireland. <laughs> I, do, I, would, I actually don't remember it. And it's probably been buried. The memory's probably been wiped from uh, every Irish person's <laughs> minds. But uh, it ties in nicely to the Diageo mantra. Because you talk about this idea that freedom succeed was was embedded in the company. 
Well, I think when they wrote their original manifesto, they put in freedom to succeed, and it's still there. And it just occurred to me that everyone, everywhere, always has freedom to succeed. Freedom to fail is another thing. I think that's much more important uh, because if you can go in and know that you can mess up from time to time, you'll work much more effectively. And we had a massive, uh, a massive failure with a brand called Green Sleeves shortly after Bailey's. This was a sort of liquid after eight, but we didn't get the product right and it, it failed abysmally. Uh, but the CEO at the time said, well, nice try, fellas. Better luck next time. And that gave us a huge amount of confidence for the future. Because you weren't just slammed on failures. You, you, obviously, you'd had lots of success for the brand anyway, and you're not going to win them all. No, but at that time, we only had a couple of successes um, under our belt. So it is a very tolerant, understanding man um, who made that decision to let us go on. Mark of a good leader. And, um, you know, one of the key ones you talk about, and I'd love you to expand on this one again. So you, you say the influx of FMCG specialists into the drinks business has resulted in placing all the burden for decision on the consumer, and you feel that that's really wrong. Well, I think the, uh, there's a mantra, let the consumer decide, which I suppose ultimately the consumer does. But let the consumer decide whether to buy your product, not how your product should be put together. I think that's very important. I mean, a lot of people in in big companies like Unilever and Procter and Gamble use a lot of research to um, validate decisions, but I don't think it um, it always works. I, I, I really don't. I remember in Unilever when I worked in Unilever. Oh, back in the sixties, uh, they were obsessed with fairy liquid. They were desperate to come up with a competitor to fairy liquid, and everything they tried didn't succeed. And then one of the directors came back from a trip to Australia and said, hey, I just come across this um, washing up liquid that's got lemon juice in it. Why don't we do that? And they did. And it was the only time they managed to um, compete effectively against Ferry. So that was just a bit of instinct. There wasn't a huge amount of research uh, backup to tell them or consumers advising them as to what to do. But that's a key thing. Like that, I took that from your stories and Hugh and Tom Jago. You guys went with your gut. You went with your gut feeling. But also the other piece where you peppered yourself with different information. You read different information. Like you said, with Smirnoff, you went looking back at the history of the brand. You looked back to look forward. You know, you really did your work. You didn't depend on the same points as information as everyone else because you're going to get the same results. I think you're right. I mean, I think if you look in the same place, you do come up with the same answer. I remember years ago, I developed a um, olive oil margarine for craft, and the brief was to try and compete with Flora. And um, we had a look, and we came up with a brand called Olivia. And after much discussion with the company, they decided not to do it. Six months later, Vandenberg's Unilever came out with Olivia which is the same idea with, with only one vowel different. I don't think there was any espionage involved. I think we were looking in the same place and found the same answer. But it's just this idea of just make a decision and go with it, go with your gut. Like when you had to come up with initials for Baileys with the drink as well, I love that story. Well, that was uh, uh, lovely. It was, uh, it was a July morning 
and the open golf was taking place, David Dan called me from Dublin and said, we can't just call it Bailey's. That's far too easy. Uh, we need initials. And I looked down at my paper sports page and there was something about RNA pronounced on pin placements. So I said, well, what about two initials? How about RNA? And he was a golfer and he said, yeah, why not? Why not do it that way? Absolutely. Because again, going back to your point, if that was a junior, the junior would be afraid to make the decision. And that, I, I love what you're saying here because the, the more senior up the company, the more decision will be made quickly because there's no risk. There's no people afraid and watching their back and what will they say and what if I get it wrong? It's actually the opposite is the mindset. Absolutely. And I think that the alternative, which is to go out and do research amongst people to find out that's wrong just as often as it's right. I mean, research is by no means the um, ironclad reassurance that um, you expect it to be. In fact, I wrote a piece many years ago saying, if 90% of all new products fail, or 95%, and all of those are subjected to research evaluation, why don't we blame the research? We blame everybody else. That's it, man. You know, and I actually genuinely think, Dave, does it there's a fear of making the decision too quickly. I mean, you, you say in the book, like how long did Bailey's take you end to end to get it to the client? Uh, it took about six months because we had to get the product right. And when I talked to the R&D guy, I said, when we launched, if where we are now, this was 10 years later, is 100, where were we when we launched? He said, oh, about 49. So it wasn't perfect then, but it became perfect over time. But even when you and Hugh were in the office on Greek Street in the middle of Soho, he says the idea, 45 minutes later, you've mixed up this concoction. Like, I mean, that's brilliant. It reminds me of this brilliant story of the ship mender. Basically, this is the story. A giant ship had failed and the owners of the ship tried one after expert after the other, brought all these consultants in, but none of them could fix the ship's engine. And then they brought in this one old man who'd been fixing ships since he was a kid. And he carried a bag of tools with him. And when he arrived, he went to work. He inspected the engine really careful, top to bottom. And two of the ship's owners were there watching him, hoping he'd know what to do. So he looks things over, reaches in his bag, pulls out a tiny little hammer, gently tapped, and the engine turns to life. And he put the hammer away, and he was gone. A week later, the owners receive a bill for $10,000, and they can hardly believe it. So they write to him, asking him for an itemized bill. And this reminded me of you, man. The man sent the bill that read, tapping with a hammer, $2, knowing where to tap, $9,998. I think he was a much, much better businessman than I ever was. <laughs> but, but that's it, man. But people are afraid to almost value experience. You know, just because it might take somebody an hour to write a piece, an article, it's not, it's been brewing inside them for like years, for their entire life. All those different lenses, all that stuff you've read, for example, that's what, that's where you get better and better with experience. I think you do. It's not just what, what people call gut feel and instinct. It's, it does, it is experience. I mean, can, can I tell you about my favorite idea of all? Yeah. Please. Which never even got onto the drawing board, let alone off it. When Diageo was formed, between Guinness UD and IDV, there was a lot of talk about synergy between the two companies, etc. And one of the subjects that came up was the idea 
of a Guinness whiskey. And this went on for quite some time. And somebody said to me, go along to the meeting and see whether you can make some sense of it and whether you can contribute. So I went along to the meeting and the discussion, there were about a dozen people, and they were talking about whether it should be Irish whiskey or Scotch whiskey. And, you know, which would more powerfully take on the Guinness name? And this went on for quite some while. And somebody said to me, well, you've been unusually quiet. What do you think? So I said, well, although a lot of people now who drink Guinness probably have no idea where Ireland is or what Ireland is, if you think of markets like West Africa and East Africa and the Far East, um, they don't have much of a sense of what Ireland is. But nevertheless, Ireland is part of Guinness's DNA. If you get off a plane in Dublin airport, you'll see something relating to Guinness. Therefore, it has to be Irish whiskey. But the problem is that you don't own any Irish whiskey. This was 1998, and um, Pernod Ricard owned most of the Irish whiskey. So I said, if you do an Irish whiskey, what you'll be doing is taking Pernod Ricard's product and taking business away from your Scotch whiskies, which is not a very good idea. And then I had that sort of amazing moment that you only occasionally have. I remembered all those unbelievably boring days I'd spent being ferried around distilleries. And I remembered what one man said to me. He said, the first thing you do when you make a whiskey is you make a beer, and then you take the beer and distill it. And I suddenly thought, wow, that's it. Why don't we simply distill Guinness? Why don't we simply call it distilled Guinness? It has huge advantages. One, you aren't going to be controlled by the Irish Whiskey Association or the Scotch Whiskey Association. Two, you're going to be able to make it today and sell it tomorrow. You don't have to tie it up for three years in cost. Three, you can make it taste any way you want it to taste because you make the, uh, the rules. And four, the provenance is not Ireland or Scotland, it's Guinness. So if you make it in Nigeria, you can distill it in Nigeria. And I thought that was one of the best ideas I ever had because it was all the information was there. It was just a question of digging it out. And I took it to the company, but uh, it never got anywhere. I know you say that's one of your favorite ideas, but you, you did have another idea that you shared with me outlined in your letter to Nelson Mandela. I think if you're in the ideas business, you're compelled to have ideas about almost anything. And uh, being a an ex-South African, I've always had a strong feeling for the country. And when Mandela became president, I was utterly delighted. I didn't think it would happen in my lifetime. So after a couple of months, I decided to write him a letter. And I said that the whole essence of um, what's going to happen next is managing the expectation of the black electorate. They're going to want to see change, and they're going to want to see it quickly. So what can you do? And I said, here's a thought. Why don't you build a city? Get blacks and whites to work together in proportion to their share of the population. Make it into a, an international cause celeb for gap year youth. Get pop singers to sing songs about it, uh, like Live Aid. Get companies that want to do business with New South Africa to invest in it. Get top architects to uh, compete to design it. And when it's been built, why don't you allow uh, blacks and whites to occupy it again in proportion to the population? 
so it'll become a truly multiracial city. And I thought that was, I talked to a lot of people about it, and uh, most of them thought it was a good idea. So I sent the letter off to Mr. Mandela. And a month later, I got a very polite note back from a lady with an African name saying, we've passed this on to Mr. Mandela. Two months after that, I got a, another very polite note from somebody with an English name saying, we've now passed it on to the Minister for Housing. And then a month after that, I got a letter from somebody with an Afrikaans name saying, uh, sending me a copy of the South African Housing Act, saying, would you please look through the Housing Act because it will tell you why your idea is not feasible. I also had to pay about five pounds in excess postage because it was an enormous document. So there the matter ended. But I still think it's a good idea. And um, there's a new president of South Africa. There's a new regime in Zimbabwe. Mr. George Weir has become the president of Liberia. Maybe somebody will pick up on it. And I get it. I mean, when you're an ideas guy, you want to solve problems. And I was thinking the way they tried to kill your idea by sending that, by even you incurring the the charge. I mean, that's that's what happens. So many good people and companies in in big corporations, they bring ideas like your idea. You know, much smaller, but they bring it to up the line to middle management, and it gets killed in a not the same fashion, but mentally in a very similar fashion. No, I agree. I mean, I think um, I was lucky. I, I had some wonderful people to work with, and I lasted a long time doing it the way I did. And that really does um, surprise and delight me. Yeah, well, you've had an unbelievable career, and it's been such a pleasure talking to David. I really am grateful for you coming on the show. Your book is phenomenal. It's beautifully crafted. Like, before you read it, I, I obviously didn't know the story and how carefully you choose words, for example, and that comes across. I think you do a brilliant job of bringing the reader into the different stories, but also imparting brilliant lessons for innovators, ideas, sellers, CEOs, leaders. I think it's a phenomenal read. And where can people buy it and where can people find out more, David? Well, uh, there's a website, which is www.thatshitwillneversell.com, where you can see a sample chapter, a full index, and you can also order the book. And in fact, I think it's one of the quickest ways that you can get it anywhere in the world. Uh, you can also get it on Amazon. And if you make a fuss at your local bookstore, I'm sure they can order it in. That's a strong hint to make a fuss at the local bookstore. But just a, a note as well, if people buy from www.thatshit will never sell you get a better you get a better share of the profits which i think it's important to say david i know you wouldn't say that but i i'm going to say that for you it's been such a pleasure and i really honored to have you on the show and i thank you very very much david gluckman inventor creator the man who knows where to tap on any broken ship author of that shit will never sell thanks for joining us thank you very much indeed it's been a pleasure